Welcome to the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast, your headquarters for building a six-figure-plus e-commerce business. I'm your host, e-commerce entrepreneur and Jeff Bezos wannabe, Andrew Derry. Hey guys, it's Andrew here, and welcome to episode number six of the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast. Uh, today in the main segment, I've got Dan Andrews from Tropical Talk Radio uh, over at thetropicalmba.com. He does a, a weekly podcast, of course, uh, if you're familiar with him. But he also is an experienced e-commerce entrepreneur. He owns ModernCatDesigns.com and the ThePortableBarCompany.com, along with uh, his partner, Ian. We're going to be talking about his story, how he got into e-commerce manufacturing, talking about partnerships, how to structure them, and maybe my favorite part of the discussion, uh, personal finances and debt, how that works, uh, how that's been a role in his life and his thoughts on, uh, on finances. So great discussion. Stick around for that. But before we dive into to the main segment, a first sale shout out to Eva Huey from dashcamsource.com. Eva writes in and she says, we launched our store dashcamsource.com and made our first sale exactly one week after the launch. It was an incredible experience. The funny part of the experience was that because of car problems, my husband had to walk <laughs> two and a half miles to deliver the order to FedEx for shipment. So uh, congratulations, Eva. It, it's funny. It seems like a, with a lot of those first sales, there's always something that goes wrong, whether the item gets returned like it was for myself or something's out of stock. But despite the problems, it, it rarely diminishes the excitement of one of those first sales. So congratulations and best of luck with the store. Going to be excited to see how you do with that. And one other piece of just e-commerce um, tidbit uh, news I kind of came across recently was SkyMall. If you're familiar with them, they've got a, a magazine that is going to be the one you almost always pick up when you're in an airplane. You can't use your electronic devices during takeoff. And they've got a bunch of random stuff in there. Kind of like... Uh, um, sharper image, random, obscure products, but but you can't help yourself from looking through it. And I was reading something this week that said that SkyMall is actually a drop shipping company, which as a drop shipper myself, it was was kind of surprising. So they don't keep all that stuff. They just pretty much print a magazine, have other people put their ad space in there, and when they get orders, they forward it on to the, the manufacturers or, or companies, and they drop ship the products straight to the end consumer. So kind of crazy, you know, drop shipping, uh, it's, it's more places than you think. So with that being said, let's go ahead and dive into Disque's discussion with Dan Andrews. Today, I've got the pleasure of chatting with Dan Andrews from among many other websites, uh, the Tropical mba.com dan thanks for taking the time to chat buddy it's a pleasure andrew yeah so before you were globe trotting and building portable bars and you know improving cats leisure time all over the place uh <laughs> what was the story how, how did you get into e-commerce so for me it was just it was happenstance uh, i grew up working in point of purchase display factories my father happened to be a project manager and he would sort of uh, get me jobs in the factory so i'd be you know, sweeping the floors or running large machines in a mill or bolting on signs on the Krispy Kreme displays. So I sort of had this weird background in the retail display industry. And uh, after I got that expensive college degree, of course, nobody cared about my college degree. Everybody cared about, you know, what was your experience? And for me, it was point of purchase displays. So I got a job that was very similar to my dad's uh, running projects in a point of purchase display company. And uh, that was what started it with the manufacturing for me, is that I learned how to take a spec, go to China, and build a product. And that's what I did for the first three to four years of my career. 
So when you say point of purchase display, that's that's not really a term I'm familiar with. So is that if I walk into a 7-Eleven and I see a Krispy Kreme donut thing, it, are you designing the actual cases that would display the merchandise in the store? That's right. So it's okay. like sort of custom uh, manufacturing for brands. So if Nike wants a cool rack for Foot Locker or whatever, uh, the companies that I worked for would bid on those programs with you know, their design capabilities and then try to get it manufactured. So, of course, it's an awful business. Your, your clients <laughs> just absolutely just give you bloody noses and you're competing against five people for every project. And then when you do get the project, the fun's just beginning. But I'll tell you what, uh, it's really great way to learn how to manufacture because you're under pressure. You know, you have to learn how to thread a bunch of open loops together from anywhere from the raw material supplier right down to the delivery at, uh, at the retailer. So it was trial by fire for me. That's cool. And, and I'm guessing, I mean, you guys did more on the fabrication side and I, I imagine you built stuff to spec, but I, if I had to guess, I bet there's a lot more that goes into those product display cases than you would just think as an average consumer. Am I right? I think so. I mean, the manufacturing isn't, isn't so hard, but I think the project coordination and the rollout schedule. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, if you think about the coordination of getting 400 displays set up in Petco's across the country, getting the product on it, and, and having untrained personnel do the assembly and the rollout. So that's really the trick, and uh, that's, where the, that's where the fun comes in. That's why I hire guys like me. <laughs> Got you. And so you, you did this for about three or four years. Uh, it sounds like maybe it wasn't your dream job, obviously. And so how did you transition from the day job into, uh, into your first venture? Well, I loved the day job, and uh, I thought, man, this is a really oh, crap way. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I loved it for, for a period of time, you know, and it gave me a great set of opportunities. And I thought, man, this is a really crap way to do business. Uh, we have to improve this. So the first thing I thought was, well, if we could build trust online, if we could have expertise in certain product categories, we wouldn't have to get our nose bloodied by these big clients all the time. So that's exactly what I did. I went out and I hired web marketers and I started building this web infrastructure for this company I was working for. And uh, little by little, I started to sort of, the dots connected for me. I was like, what if we just made products instead of doing custom manufacturing? Because if we can own this real estate online, I mean, for, for me in 2006, 2005, this is sort of a revolution, right? It's like, hey, I can own the number one spot for fancy cat furniture. Now, why am I going to do custom manufacturing for Petco? Why aren't I just going to have my own line of products? So this was the eventual pitch that I went to my investor was, who was my boss at the time. And I said, hey, don't you think we should start a side business that leverages all these internet marketing skills that I'm learning? And uh, I think it was the three or four years working for him growing. You know, I, we, we really had significant growth on the other side. And I think that was part that track record and part the amazing results we were seeing on the internet that he said, yeah, I absolutely think we should start that business. And so that's how I got started. So that's neat because you – so that's one of my questions. You parlayed your experience at your day job into – Kind of, you know, eventually what you ended up doing, and I know you've you've kind of referenced a, a third investor. Ian's your business partner, of course, yourself, and you've referenced kind of a third third investor before. And is that who you were talking about? Kind of the guy who you were working for at the time? Yeah, and it's interesting though. You said about the parlay your experience because this wasn't the first time I went and got an investor. Uh, the first time I wanted to do this cool SaaS application, and I'm <laughs> if you listen to my podcast, you know I still ha- I'm burnt up about this. You know, uh, I wasted a bunch of money trying to do something that was way over my head because I wanted to be a cool internet guy. And it wasn't until I said, you know, what is it that I actually know about? Um, and it was the manufacturing um, that was my first successful venture. Okay, so in terms of uh- being able to financially do that, because I think a lot of people who are trying to get get started, finances 
are an issue. And so was that something where you put in a bunch of money up front and you started working um, on your own with this guy or did you continue doing the day job? How did that, how did that work? Because that's kind of a, an interesting, a pretty unique setup to kind of go into business with your employer. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an issue of of depth and trust of relationships, and powerful people distribute opportunities to people they trust, right? And that that doesn't come out because you have a fancy website. You're not going to get this kind of opportunity uh, because you uh, met somebody at a cocktail party, right? I mean, I'm talking about having years in the game, building trust, respect, competence. You know, so that's how that deal got done. So I look at it like this. I mean. There's a lot of companies out there that have established infrastructures that you could go to and offer them an alternate way to monetize their infrastructure. And that's an appealing prospect for small businesses. So if you've got a a small-time manufacturer that already has relationships set up in China, already has the logistical infrastructure, why not go do a partnership? Hey, you guys provide the logistics and the sourcing. I'll do all the marketing. It's all gravy for you guys. I mean, that's a deal that, that can work out. That's a really interesting model. I've, I've talked with some, some friends recently, or maybe acquaintances, but uh, they're kind of doing that from a bricks-and-mortar standpoint. Maybe they're not chatting directly with the end manufacturer, but they'll go to a bricks-and-mortar guy who's got a pretty sizable presence, and they don't know anything about e-commerce, but they'll partner up and say, hey, you, you know, you've got this great expertise. You've got all this inventory. I don't want to... You know, personally, myself, you know, I'm in the dropshipping game, and I don't want to go drop a ton of money up front necessarily <laughs> on getting something started. I know internet marketing, and I know you know SEO, and so they'll leverage, you know, they'll just partner with those guys and do all of the all of the online e-commerce sales for a percentage of it, and let the storefront deal with all the kind of the hassles of the customer service and all that that stuff. So you know, this is, this is beautiful. Like it's it's this really meta task, and it's really hard to talk about. I guess is this idea of deal making. Like, how do you become a deal maker? How do you negotiate reality? And uh, you're, this kind of idea of like looking for people that are kind of in walled gardens and they're committed to those gardens because they're profitable. And a good example is Ian and I partnering with Jesse Lawler on our new software business. You know, Ian's a product guy and he's a CEO of a product company. I'm a writer and a podcaster and an internet marketer. And uh, we didn't want to become software entrepreneurs. You know, we, we have two other businesses in other areas. So for us, it was a much better deal. It was a lot more fun to bring on a third partner who could just bring in a lot of extra value to our business and to our customers than it was for us to, to do it ourselves. So I think there are tons of opportunities like that. You know, it's essentially just a, a joint venture. And so, so you've got this working relationship or this partnership with your employer. And it was the first business that came out of it. Was it uh, Modern Cat Designs? Yes. Yes, it was. Modern Cat Designs. <laughs> You know, we thought that this was going to just take over the world, Andrew. I got to tell you. I mean, I was, I was imagining how many pieces of cat furniture would get me my first 9-11. And uh, <laughs> it was this absurd idea that Petco was just going to drop a, a check on our lap. And it never really happened. But the business turned out uh, good. And we learned a lot of things about going direct to consumer. You know, it's a, it's a really big space, and, and ultimately what we found is we had more success going business to business for whatever reason. I mean, it, a lot of it's luck, too. You know, when we look at something like our portable bar business, uh, we're having a lot more success there dealing with other businesses, wholesalers. They're a lot cheaper to identify those people. And, of course, cat furniture just isn't that niche. 
Uh, it doesn't solve a problem for people. We're competing with every other piece of cat furniture in the world. But, but it still, it still could have worked out. I mean, we could still be the cat furniture guys. So I don't want to undersell it too much. It's funny. It's funny you say that. And it just because I, I think when you're right at the outset of, of a venture, and I've done this in every business I've started, when you're right at the outset, you just see the dollar signs. You see, you've got, you're so optimistic, which is good, right? It's, it's what you need to be, in, to, to be an entrepreneur. And I think yeah, I continually do this year in and year out. But I think all of my, you know, I've started like three businesses over the past five years or so. And every single one of them, I started it off and it took at least... It took at least a couple of years to really iron stuff out, figure out the market, figure out a ton of challenges and things I completely overlooked. And some of them, you know, did really well. Some of them did you know, just kind of average. But it, I felt like it always takes at least a couple of years to really get a feel for, for, for your market, what you're doing right. And stuff just doesn't happen. It just doesn't take off like a bottle rocket. You usually got to kind of, <laughs> you usually got to kind of figure out a bunch of stuff and then slowly over time, you'll see that gradual improvement. So I can't re- I couldn't, I could go on for five minutes relating to what you just said. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's so much fun though, sitting at the outset looking and uh, it's, it's good to good to always try to talk yourself and think, Oh, this one's going to be different. This one isn't going to be like the other ones. So absolutely. yeah. So, so you had the, the cat furniture business and then you obviously, like you mentioned, you're doing uh, portable bars. And so is that also a venture that did that come on pretty quickly after the uh, the cat furniture business? Or is that something that you and Ian started independently of that uh, third investor? So the third investor lasted for maybe two years and then, uh, you know, basically started having some financial troubles with his other business ventures. So we just bought him out, which was really nice for us, actually, because we had a we had a little bit of value conflict. You know, we wanted different things from the business. Um, our third investor, you know, lived a different lifestyle, had a lot more money than us. And, you know, we really wanted to take the business in some radical directions. And, you know, things like how we share the business online, like that's something that I definitely had in my mind. Like I wanted to share the narrative of, the, of our business because for me, starting this business was a personal revolution. And uh, it opened up a window to a whole new possibility of life for me, really, of uh, personal freedom and travel and these kinds of things. And I wanted to share that with people. But that's kind of maybe small ball for some guy who's looking at it thinking, how can this make me a million bucks? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's a big drag when you have a partnership that is a significant equity portion. You know, you want to make sure that your values are aligned on your ventures. So we learned a lot about partnerships and how they work and how they don't. But regardless, we were able to get out of that and it worked out for everybody in the end. But the portable bar company came along much longer. Um, we had been probably launched in about five or six niches, you know, similar to what you're doing. Like, you know, you learn one thing, you kind of like you're poking around at other stuff. And Portable Bar Company was really like the culmination of looking at all those four or five niches and saying, you know, what would be the ultimate niche for what we've been demonstrated to be good at? And uh, yeah, the Portable Bar Company is, is sort of the response to that. We feel like that could be a big winner for us over the next few years. So when did you move from the day job because you were obviously still doing some of, the, of your own business stuff with the day job with kind of that unique situation. But when did you move from that and just call it quits with the day job and start focusing completely on your business? The one thing I didn't really think, like, I kind of, I don't remember exactly how I felt like. I was like, you know, this is kind of a side thing or whatever. But that corroded really quick. You know, I, I guess, like, at, at my heart, I am an entrepreneur. And, like, when I got that taste of it, I was like, I can't do this day job much longer. I mean, <laughs> not at all. And, in fact, I left really early. Like I probably strategically should have stayed longer and leveraged the salary and you know all that, but once I just saw the path, I was like, forget it. I'm gonna jump right into poverty <laughs> <laughs> because I just thought it was so such a huge opportunity and so much fun and so much potential. 
And, you know, this was, you know, I had already failed at the software thing and then we were doing this and then I was like looking at a bunch of internet marketing stuff. So I was like, hey, you know, if this doesn't make it, the next thing, no big deal. But it would be a shame for me not to take this opportunity to sleep on my mother's couch and see what I can get get taken care of. So (laughs) it never came down to that. You know, that's the crazy thing is that, you know, you close one door, a bunch of other doors open up and that's what ended up happening for me. But I was pretty much do anything to, to have the opportunity to, to win my time back and to put 100% of my energy into my own assets. Yeah, I think that's powerful. For, uh, that can be a powerful force. I mean, I remember when I quit, quit the job cold turkey and, and was starting my own thing. You know, if you're working, it's, it's easy if you're working a side business, I think. I have a lot of respect. Let me say this first. I have a lot of respect for people who are able to bootstrap stuff while they're working a day job. Like I was chatting with a guy earlier today who, you know, he was in the finance world. He worked 100 hours a week and he was still able to like bootstrap this business up to the level where he could quit, not comfortably, but quit on the side. And, and I mean, you kind of did something similar. And so I got a tremendous amount of respect for, for people who can do that. But at the same time, there's something about taking that leap of faith and not being, if you've got 10 kids out there and, and you know, they're counting on you, don't, don't go quit your job tomorrow based on this information. But there's something about taking that leap of faith in terms of motivation and just really getting you to put your nose to the grindstone in terms of getting in terms of getting stuff done and moving a business forward because you don't have, you don't, can't afford to just dilly dally and and uh, you know spend a month and a half putting up together an LLC you got to do the stuff that is most important to move your business forward because you got a limited time frame I, I mean, I've heard compelling arguments on both sides I think for, for me like the thing about entrepreneurship it's the right trajectory you know like at a certain point you've got enough irons in the fire and you see that it's a winning trajectory so for me it's it's always been about the moment it's feasible to quit, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you see, people kind of say, I really want to do this. I've got 20 grand. I'm going to quit. Maybe that's not the best move, right? Because if you're not, if you can't get the stuff, just the momentum going on the side at the beginning, then you're probably not cut out for it yet. It, timing is probably not right. But for me, you know, we had products in the market, in customers' hands, cash flow running. We didn't have any money, of course, because every time you sell out of something in an e-commerce business, you got to go buy more stuff, which I had to figure that out the hard way. <laughs> But the irons were in the fire. It was minimum feasible, and I was off to the races. Yeah. So, so this actually is kind of a good segue into something that I, I have appreciated that you've talked about on your podcast, and it's something that I don't think a lot of entrepreneurs talk about, uh, and it's super important. At least I think it's super important is kind of personal finances as it relates to entrepreneurship. And so, how were you able to financially do that? You know, quitting your job and just diving into this was it something where you had you know you kind of had looked ahead a year or six months and, and were socking away money and so you had a little bit of a, a cushion for a runway? Was it something where you just kind of took the plunge and and figured, hey man, I, I'm going to make it happen? Or you know, how did that work? How were you financially able to swing that? I wasn't man. I had credit cards, <laughs> so those <laughs> were totally willing to give me money at absurd percentage rates. Uh, yeah, I had debt. I had I had a lot of debt when I quit. I had money in the bank, you know, enough that I didn't have to take on more debt. But I was not a financially intelligent middle class youth. I I did all the typical stuff. I did retail therapy on the weekends. I felt like I needed to buy something, you know, on Saturday. It was this weird impulse, you know. Uh, in particular, when I had my job, I just felt like you know maybe I should go get a pair of shoes or something. I would just kind of get me out of bed on the weekends. It was like the way I expressed a feeling of power and maybe a a situation that I didn't feel a lot of control over how my life was going. I felt really beholden to those jobs and and those debts that I was building up. Years of living over my means meant that, you know, four years into my career, I was net negative. I had made less money with really good salaries than I would have been had I just come out of school with my student loan debt and just laid low. You know, it's, it's kind of this weird irony. And I see a lot of people getting into the situation where, it was that student loan debt 
was a, a loan that could have been deferred, you know, that was probably $200 a month or $150 a month that, that it was that debt that inspired me to go get this job. Right. And then for the job, it's like, well, you know, I got to have a decent car and I got to have some good clothes and you know, my friends are getting married in Tahoe next weekend and this <laughs> and, you know, four or five years later and you've, you've got, you got five figures of debt. And I think that was part of it too. I was just like, hey, this isn't working. Like this, <laughs> I'm making a bunch of money at this job. I, I don't have any money. And none of the things that I want to do with my life seem to require a lot of money. You know, I want to have a lot of time to spend with my friends. So that doesn't require money. I want to go live in a foreign country for a year or two. That doesn't require money. It just requires time. It requires disassociating your earning from your location. And so t- to me, it was all those things, the promises of entrepreneurship is, you know, if you can make 3000 or $4,000 a month, in personal income from a business, that money is so much more valuable than money that you're making from your job. You know, because you're able to earn it from anywhere. You're able to focus all of your time on projects that are going to have an exponential asset generating effect for you. Um, and so it was th- that kind of, I think, frustration that helped me to push me out of that situation faster. Like, I didn't feel like I was going to solve that debt problem in the employee chair. Now, all that said, the moment that I heard about entrepreneurship, I had this instinct that my personal finances were sort of the ground zero. That was where all of this was going to start. So I immediately started binging on Dave Ramsey and uh, focusing on that debt. The moment I read, started reading things like Purple Cow and 4-Hour Workweek and, you know, I might have been reading Zen Habits at the time. I forget. There was sort of this slew of entrepreneurial information coming my way. And, uh, you know, the, the weekend trips stopped. And I would wake up on Saturday mornings and rub my hands together and say, what can I build? And that's really when my life started getting better. Rather than what can I buy, went to what can I build? Yeah, I think it's, it's funny because I, th- I feel like there's two kind of mindsets. You have people who look at, at time as, or you have people that look at money as either being able to buy you know, material objects or time and freedom. And those are really, when you boil it down, the two, you know, the only two kind of philosophies in terms of money I think people have it ultimately. So it, It's this weird transition when you, when you drink the Kool-Aid of entrepreneurship or of creative lifestyle in general, all of a sudden the, the, the value of your time just shoots up. Like that stock just skyrockets because, man, if I could save 20 grand and live for a year somewhere and build something, you know, really build something that's meaningful, you know, that could sustain me for the rest of my life. And I think that that was the script that I bought into. So far, so good. You know, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> no, I think I think it's a I think it's a good script, and I think people underestimate too how uh, you know people always say that it's the little changes that um, that really make such a difference, and and especially I don't know, especially if you're young in your life, if you're a single guy, which it sounds like you were at the time, and and, and I was when uh, you know when I started, no mortgage, no family, nothing like that. You've got this kind of limited window to be able to to really take a, a fairly small risk in terms of what you're giving up. And and you've got this opportunity where if you take it, you can capitalize on it. It can change the entire trajectory of your entire life. Because as you get older and you get more obligations and and um, you know, more things come into your life, it gets it gets infinitely harder to be able to do that. Totally agree. Yeah. And uh, everything going for me in that respect, I had nothing to lose. And so it was easy for me. And and that's crazy because it was really hard <laughs> at the time. <laughs> It, it's tough. And, you know, you talk about how hard it was. Let's talk about your your car. You know, there was this, it sounded like, you know, it sounds like when you were working at the job, uh, you had a pretty, pretty nice ride. And then when you, when you came into entrepreneurship and you were running your business, you know, you made a downgrade, which, which I relate to a lot. What, what was that about? Give us some insight into that. 
I had this big plan that I was going to come to Vietnam. And so, so I sold my car, the, the car that I had a loan on it. And it wasn't a nice car, but it was a car that I had a loan on. You know, it was like a $10,000 car. A kid who's got no money getting a $10,000 loan. <laughs> Dave Ramsey would destroy you now. It's new Dave Ramsey in that car. It's, it's amazing. I'm sure a lot, a lot of people were in that position. I was helpless. Like, I had no idea how car dealerships worked. I had no idea how banks worked or why they'd even want to extend me so much money. But I had no cash to solve the problem. So they solved my problem and, you know, it cost me a lot. Probably ended up paying double for that car over the course of <laughs> When I quit my job, I went to Vietnam to set up a manufacturing sourcing office here. And, and that didn't work out. Uh, the financial crisis hit and, and that plan got rubbed out. So I had to move back to San Diego for a few months. And, of course, my first impulse was I got to get a car, right? Because I, I need to, you know, all the classic things. I need to get to the office. I need to get around safely, you know, blah, 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 blah. Why don't I just get a $6,000 Maxima? And my business partner, who's very good at this stuff, just said, look, entrepreneurs do not buy things that they can't afford. They just don't do it. You know, you've been listening to Dave Ramsey for a year now, Dan. Live up. How much money do you have? And I said, I got fucked. <laughs> and he said, I do a $500 car. And it took me a $350 car. And I'll tell you what, Andrew, I was, there was no way I was getting a date in that thing. And it gets even worse because at the time I was an entrepreneur with an e-commerce business. So I wanted to meet with other entrepreneurs. So I'd be rolling up to these mastermind events in a $350 1983 Datsun. And they'd be like, what is this guy, man? His AdWords campaigns must be expensive because he's got nothing. <laughs> uh, I love it though. But like that's, you know, but that's really what a true entrepreneur would do. There's, I think there's so many people that, you know, sometimes you look at, sometimes I'll drive by people's houses or, or see people's cars. And, and I think one of two things, I think they're doing, they're either doing incredibly, incredibly well, or they are just mired in debt and incredibly financially irresponsible. And uh, when you look at people that are really successful, uh, they're not ostentatious with their wealth. You know, you look at like, like books like The Millionaire Next Door. Most of those people never buy new cars. They buy used stuff, you know, and, and they're conservative. And that's one of the reasons why they're able to do so well, partly because they're, they're thrifty, but partially because they, they see the value. They see the opportunity cost of taking that money and doing something else with it, whether it's investing or building a business or whatever that is. It's funny because, you know, when we were in Berlin, we, uh, we both kind of showed, uh, showed pictures of our cars. And I say, same thing, man. I had one that was just as ugly, two-toned. You saw the picture of it. And, and I was embarrassed of it. I remember I had to go pick up my managing director at, uh, at my company in this car one time. And I was just horrified because I had to go pick him up from like a rental agency. And it was just, it was, it was awful. <laughs> it was really embarrassing. But, but ultimately, you know, it's worth the trade-off. And I think the, people that, I think the people that really matter, the people that you really want to be aligned with in the long term, they're not going to care. You know, I remember taking my wife on a date in that car. I, this is like date number two. She shows up at my house. We get into my car, my two-toned, well, it wasn't two-toned at the time. But it was still pretty bad. And it didn't start. It just it just died. It wouldn't start. And this was pretty common. So I kind of just explained to her that sometimes it didn't start. And we had a good little conversation for five minutes, tried it again, and roared up and off we went. But uh, we ended up, ended up getting married, you know. <laughs> so These businesses, they're expensive to start, right, yeah. in every respect. And uh, if you're going to get distracted with other things, I love that Dave Ramsey quote, live like nobody else so you can live like nobody else. I mean, this is some weird stuff. And so it's good exercise. You know, Tim Ferriss put out these exercises in his book. I don't know if you recall, but he said like lay on the in the middle of the mall and do something weird and just walk up to people. And it's kind of like you got to get used to being a little bit uncomfortable to make this a reality. Mm-hmm. If you just do what makes sense to you and feels normal and stuff, you know, it might not work out. Yeah. Well, to, to quote Dave Ramsey again, normal's broke, right? You know, <laughs> <laughs> so... 
<laughs> so yeah, if you're doing normal stuff, you're probably not going to be able to build yourself a business, an e-commerce business. So Dan, you came out of college with some student debt, you know, as did I. And you look at you look at college today, and you know, there's like a trillion dollars in overall debt. It's like doubled in the last you know six years or so or five years, and like forty percent of debt. You know, some outrageous number, like forty percent of all people who are out of school have have loans that are either like in default or or people are deferring on their payments. So if, if you're talking to a guy, you know, if there's a, you know, let's say someone who is thinking about going to college right now, but they want to be an entrepreneur. Do you advise them to go get a four-year degree? What do you think? Would you do it again if you had the choice? Oh, so yeah, great question. And one that's mired with landmines to answer. <laughs> Short answer is if, if you want to own an e-commerce business, that's what you want to do. Should you go to get a four-year college degree? No, I don't think so. You know, there's a lot of external factors there. Like, can you cost effectively get a degree is there something in academia that you're drawn to and that you're passionate about you know i studied philosophy and i'm really glad i did i had a great time but it's an incredible luxury you know and it's now a luxury that ironically of course i have more time now to study philosophy than most of my philosophy professors which is a irony of sometimes you know choosing the right games to play is more important than playing games well so the the mediocre e-commerce entrepreneur has more time to study philosophy than the excellent philosophy professor. <laughs> yeah. If you're looking just straight up for, for, for going into your own business, it's kind of the MBA question, right? Like, what's more valuable? I mean, there's a, in terms of getting real-world business experience, going and dropping 100K on an MBA or using that money to start your own business. Well, you know, I think a lot of the research would suggest use your money to start your own business. It's much more valuable. Academia is, is, is marketing these things weird. Like, when I was coming up, it was like you would get an MBA if you wanted to be the kind of person who sort of had their own business someday. It's an absurd proposition now. An MBA merely gives you the credential to get a, a sort of okay job. That's uh, what those are good for. So, look, I would say when it comes to college, does that ROI – are you going to see ROI on that in your business? Probably not. Is there independent value there that if you could get a like a, a scholarship or in-state tuition, yeah, you know, go study history or philosophy or English or, or do your thing. Study economics, physics, something awesome. I'm totally amenable to that. But if what you want to do is become an e-commerce entrepreneur, hustle up an apprenticeship because that's uh, the biggest bang for your buck. Go work directly uh, for someone like I did works directly for someone like Andrew, that's how you're going to learn how to run an e-commerce business. One other thing I want to chat with you about, Danny, is, is partnerships. And obviously you and, uh, and Ian have been partners for a while now, and it sounds like you know, obviously that's worked out well for you. i got to be up front. You know, I've, I've, I've thought about partnering up with people before and had the opportunity to. And it scares the crap out of me, you know, partnering up with somebody because it's just scary. I don't know if it's I'm a control freak or I've heard about so many different partnerships that just have ended very badly based on a number of different reasons. But I'd love to get your take on that, you know. So maybe more specifically first, can you be honest? We'll make sure Ian doesn't hear this. I'll make sure he doesn't get this. What was it like early on? How'd it go? Like, was it was it smooth sailing or was it, you know, kind of some of those marriage stories where, like, my parents were like, first year of marriage was the hardest. It was tough, you know. We weren't used to, to living together. And after that, they've got my parents. I say this because my parents have the best marriage I've ever seen. But, you know, they said the first year was was tough. So so what was that like starting out? It's interesting because I think all of your worry and fear and distrust about it is well-placed. You know, these things, <laughs> they're they're volatile, you know, partnerships is sort of like dynamite. You know, it, it can blow blow up your part. It can blow up your business or blow up your business. You know, it could go one way or the other. <laughs> the first partnership was really ill considered, and and it, people give you all different kinds of advice. Like just reading uh, somebody on the internet said the other day that you know 
never go for a 50-50 partnership. I think it was like Noah Kagan or whatever. And for Ian and I, we actually advocate for certain situations. That's the only way to go. So, so no one really has a definitive answer on this. I think with marriages, there's probably a lot you can learn from that. I mean, having an incredible level of communication, similar values, similar visions for the future. You know, one of the, the rules that Ian and I have is, is nothing's really off the table. Um, there's nothing that we are not allowed to ask each other about or not allowed to bring in to the conversation because those are the things that impact this central entity in our, in our life, which is really important to us. I think what a lot of people do is they take it too lightly or they overvalue what their time is going to bring to a partnership rather than their resources. So I think uh, my overall advice would be when you enter into a partnership, always put a time limitation on it. So say, hey, you know, you're going to bring X, you're going to bring Y, and we're going to do it for three months. And then we're going to reevaluate where we're at. And if there's a dissolution, here's the ways in which we're going to split up the assets. So, you know, you're going to get half the mailing list. I'm going to get the other half or whatever it is, you know, and also have a plan for success. I mean, that's one of the things that we never did with our first partnership is we never asked ourselves, what does success look like? What does everybody else want here? And if we are making, you know, if we do get that purchase order from Petco, how's it going to go down? You know, are you going to want to cash out and buy a Ferrari or are you going to want to go out and make a $10 million company? What do we all want here? And if you can't line up on that stuff, it's probably not worth partnering. That's awesome advice. You and Ian kind of have separate roles. And I know you've said in the past that it drives you crazy when you guys have overlapping roles. Because I'm guessing partly because, uh, you know, one of the biggest benefits of a partnership is you've got different skill sets that you can leverage independently to grow the business more quickly. But, you know, you guys have it kind of set up where, where Ian runs the product side and you kind of run more of the publishing. I think what you call the publishing side. Is, is, is that correct? How do you have that structured? Yeah, that's, that's basically how it's structured now. And uh, we have a independent business, which is sort of a separate set of documentation and procedures that we review every Friday afternoon. So we have a lot of overlap in terms of strategy, but not in terms of ultimate responsibility and deliverables. Now, for us, um, that's been, like you said, hugely useful. Um, The product business is pretty mature now. So actually, Ian is sort of stepping into a more entrepreneurial role where he's going off and starting this valet software application that we'll be telling you guys about. And so that's kind of cool, too. So you've got he's he's kind of been the CEO of this mature business, but he's at, you know, an entrepreneur at heart. So now he's sort of moving over to this new business. And the publishing business is still sort of new, so I'm, I'm kind of working at that. But, yeah, ultimately, we're not responsible for the same things and never have been. And whenever we are, it gets really frustrating. It's like two guys trying to drive the same, same uh, <laughs> like, like the, you know, the yoke goes the same way and you're just twisting on it. And it's like, hey, screw you, man. So I, I just find like, you know, for us, the highest benefit of partnership is um, the personal accountability, the emotional support, and the strategic vision. It's not, hey, you write the copy and I'll do the design and then like let's mash up in an hour on it. Because that's just, you, you're going to get frustrated with that kind of stuff. Dan, this has been awesome. I've got kind of a, a deeper soul-searching question to ask you in closing. <laughs> I don't know about you, but but I, I'm kind of at a point in my business right now where I'm trying to figure out what's next. You know, where where do I take you know, my businesses and where do I take what, you know, do I keep working on those? Do I start something new? Do I try to up my game and, uh, and, and try to get into something bigger? And so in terms of yourself, what do you see yourself doing in 10 years? You know, you've got, you've done an awesome, an incredible amount of things already, but looking down that road a decade, what do you want to be doing? It's interesting because like... It- it's it's fascinating, you know, when you, you started a business in order to get personal freedom, you know, it's, you've heard the parable of the Mexican fisherman, you know, like, yeah. so I don't need to recall, this is famous stuff, but 
I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with this. Like, how do you make decisions? They kind of lose themselves a little bit. There's always this, hey, grow more, hire more people, make more money, all this kind of thing. I don't have a problem with that. I, got, I come from the lifestyle game. I got I <laughs> wanted to pursue patterns, you know. I'm going to record a podcast later today and then I'm going to lay in my bed and read uh, books all afternoon. And uh, 10 years from now, I'd love to yeah, – I, I can't make a prediction. But uh, 10 months from now, I'd like to be spending more time doing the things that I care about. And I think what entrepreneur ha, uh, entrepreneurship has taught me is finding the intersection between the things that you care about and the things that other people care about is an amazing place to play. I think when I was younger, I was always just trying to solve my own problems. You know, oh, I'd like to read more books or, oh, I'd like to write more. Oh, I'd like to travel more. Now I look at like my travels and my writing and my reading and say, well, how can those things benefit other people? Is there a way that I could travel and report on the places I'm going to that might be useful? Is there books that I could read that maybe other people don't have the time to read that then I could tell them about those books and they could get benefit out of it? And what I've found is maybe it's just growing up. <laughs> Let's call it growing up. But, um, you know, I'd like to do more of that. I'd like to find where the things that I innately love to do, how can they can benefit other people and focus on that rather than, oh, I want to be some rich guy or, oh, I want to compete with X person. Uh, that doesn't make me happy. I, I enjoy focusing on what I love and figuring out how that can be useful to others. I love it, Dan. Thanks so much. In terms of finding Dan, you can find him at moderncatdesigns.com if you've got if you're in as uh, in love with cats as uh, his uh, his partner Ian is. Portablebarcompany.com. If you want to listen to a great podcast every week, uh, this is one of the few podcasts I, I listen to regularly and make sure not to miss an episode. That's tropicalmba.com to catch Tropical Talk Radio. You can also find that on iTunes, and uh, of course you can find Dan uh, on Twitter at, at @tropicalmba. So Dan, pleasure chatting as always, and, and thanks so much for making the time. It's been great. Great pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's episode, but if you enjoyed it, make sure to download my comprehensive 55-page guide to building a profitable store, along with a bunch of other subscriber-only content for free at ecommercefuel.com forward slash ebook. A big thank you going out to Jose Aguilar of Hollywood, Florida this week for downloading the guide. Jose, I'm going to be hooking you up with a Batman Batarang folding knife. <laughs> it's the kind of knife that's got you press in the middle and, and knives come out the left and the right hand side. It's shaped in a, in a, uh, in a Batman shape. It should be the perfect accessory for backyard barbecues or building some serious clout at Comic-Con. So, so hope you hope you enjoy it. Again, uh, to download the ebook and automatically be entered to win something really strange and most likely extremely impractical each week, head on over to ecommercefuel.com forward slash ebook. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you again next Friday.